Dear Jesus, I pray your blessing and I pray your transformational power upon each man and woman that is standing this morning. God, I pray that you enable them to, even at this moment, feel your presence. I pray that they would know that great is thy faithfulness. And that, God, you will meet their needs according to your riches and glory through Christ Jesus. And though they may not understand it, they may not see it, they may not feel it, they can know that the God of the universe is working in and through their lives. And Lord is, at this time, sensing and knowing and completing, uh, Lord, your work amongst them, God. I pray that your Spirit would flow in a mighty way through their veins and through their spirits right now. God, I pray that uh, you would wrap them in your arms. You would let them know that you were there. I pray that you would let them know that in their weakness, you are made strong. And so, Lord, as we confess our weakness, our need for you, you say in your word that you give grace to the humble. You reject the crowd, but you, the proud, but you give a grace unto the humble. So, Lord, I pray for a spirit of grace, of your loving kindness, of your power, of your peace, of your strength, of your courage to fall upon them. Lord, let them know that you will walk them through this valley and through this time. And that your grace will be sufficient. Your peace will be made perfect in our weakest moments. And that you will carry us when we can't take the next step. So Lord, we lift them up to you. We thank you uh, that your word and your power are more than sufficient and more than enough to meet our needs. And so Lord, we ask that you do that right now. Though it hurt, though it be dry, Though they not understand, though they be um, perplexed by doubt, Lord, we say, great is thy faithfulness, O Lord, our Father. We, Lord, submit to you each of our brothers and sisters' requests in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. We're in the book of First Samuel, chapter 18, as we make our way through the high points of the book of First Samuel, and then of Second Samuel. And this morning, uh, as we look at the life of David, I've entitled this, Foes, Fans, and Friends. And each of us today have people that we call friends, but the real truth of it is, we only have just a very small number of friends that would we would say are brothers or sisters. The Bible says there's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. And if we're honest, if we have one or two, we are blessed. Some may have three or four, but in a world of Facebook friends where some people have 5,000 and 500,000 friends, whatever the heck that means, the real truth of most of those are acquaintances. They're nice people that maybe we met. Some of them aren't even nice people uh, that sign up as our friends. And they're just, there's just this barrage of individuals that maybe don't even know our last name, if we're real honest. 
those might be qualified into more of acquaintances. As a matter of fact, for our purposes here today, fans, people who just kind of want to know what's going on. And if you're doing well, I'll associate with you. If you, hey, if you get a little bit too high maintenance, I'm out of here. You know what I mean? And, and we all understand that principle. And we've all, uh, we all understand that we're not best friends with everybody on our Facebook. I don't even have a Facebook and I'm not saying it's good or bad. Um, I just thought I'd make that confession right now so you wouldn't think I was being a hypocrite. But as we, we look at this text, we'll see people who, uh, who are fans of David. We'll see people who are foes of David. And then we'll see someone who is a friend of David. I mean like a real friend. I mean like one who is willing to sacrificially do whatever it takes so that David might prosper. Uh, one who is willing to die for David and one who ultimately does die. Because of his covenant relationship. I mean, it's pretty remarkable. And the Bible tells us greater love hath no man than this in John chapter 15 than a man laid down his life for a friend. So if you want to know the true definition of friendship, what it means to be a friend of God is that we come to that place where we're willing to die for the sake of Christ. That, that's what it really means. So God doesn't use that term lightly as we do. Certainly not in scripture. We see Abraham referred to as a friend of God. He was willing to give his son, and we see Jesus who is willing to give his life. So there's a high premium put on friendship, at least in Scripture. And so as we look at that, I I want us to understand that. Now, we're going to look at a text, David and Jonathan, here in just a moment. And and, and let me just say this. I I just have to share this because I experienced it this week. you know, there a lot of times when people want to make, and there are very, very few, and this is a total misrepresentation and fabrication of Scripture, but they'll take passages of Scripture and malign them and misuse them. And sometimes people will look at this relationship between Don, Jonathan and David, and some of you may have heard this before, and they'll say, ah, they were gay. I mean, that's literally what people say. Matter of fact, we have the largest gay church in America in Dallas, and that's the way they interpret this passage, that Jonathan David, they were gay. That's why they made a covenant with each other. That's why they loved each other so much. I think it's interesting that there are women that loved each other, and you never say that. I mean, you never say that about Ruth and Orpah. I mean, you, you never say that, but we will take the stereotype and run with it. Matter of fact, um, I'm driving back from Dallas this week. I, I believe it was on uh, Wednesday or Thursday. I'm driving back from downtown Dallas up 35, and I see not one but two signs. The first sign says... Jesus affirmed a gay couple in the Bible. Now, let me just stop and say here, I am not a gay basher, all right? I want you to know, uh, and if you've been here before, I think you, you already know that. So this is not a big time to, to bash people who are gay, all right? That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking about the gross misrepresentation of Scripture. That's what I'm talking about today, okay? Just so we don't go on some tangent here, all right? So... It says Jesus affirmed a gay couple, and it gives the reference. It gives Matthew chapter 8. And then you go a little further, about three or four more miles down the road. And by the way, this is Dallas, in case you're wondering. And uh, coming this way, and I see another one. It says Jesus, or excuse me, the early church welcomed a gay man into the congregation. Acts chapter 8. I'm going, you got to be kidding me. I mean, that's possibly the most... Uh, the most mis- highest misrepresentation I've ever seen of using Scripture. First of all, what I, I'm sure they're referring to in Matthew chapter 8, it has to be what they're referring to, is there's a centurion who comes and asks Jesus to heal his servant. 
who is back home. And what they do, and that's it. I mean, and so Jesus said, you know, because of your faith, uh, I'm going to heal him. And they go back and his servant as well. But because it's a male servant, and because he's at home, and because he's in bed, he's sick, hello, he's dying. Um, well, he must be gay. He must be my gay boyfriend. That, that must be what it is. And I'm just going, wow, that's a huge leap. I mean, the scripture doesn't say that at all. That's certainly not what that passage is about. Acts chapter 12, or excuse me, Acts chapter 8. Ethiopian eunuch uh, is reading the scripture, and you know the story. Philip comes and interprets it for him. And because he's a eunuch, he must be gay. Are you serious? Because he's a eunuch? Do you know why people became eunuchs historically? It was usually when they were in service to royalty and there were women involved, they would make them units so they could make sure that nothing ever happened on either side and that the the bloodline would never be contaminated and there would be no temptation. So they would basically make them eunuchs. That's that's what would occur. So I, I just say that because sometimes you might hear that about this passage and you read these first few verses. And again, I mean, Heck, I could read the Dallas Cowboys in there if I want to. You know what I mean? If you just want to start reading things in the scripture, you can do that. But that's not at all what this text is about. I, I know you didn't come here today for that sermon, uh, but I felt the need to share that with you as we read this text in chapter 18, because we will see one of the most vivid examples of godly friendship in all of the scripture. We'll see the courage of David and we'll see him how he helps and how Jonathan helps David without expectation of any reward, how he is completely honest and transparent with him and how they share their most precious value, which is God Almighty. Now, as we look at that, let's read in First Samuel chapter 18, remembering that uh, there are 66 chapters devoted to the life of David. Uh, Jesus mentions uh, this story. Well, mainly Jesus mentions this story. Um, almost 57 different times in the Gospels. He, he, he mentions not this story, but the life of David and David himself. So there's a lot said about David, so it stands to reason that we ought to learn about the life of David. In beginning chapter 18, verse 1, right after the Philistine, who the Philistine is Goliath, after David has taken on Goliath, uh, who was obviously much larger, much stronger, and has killed him in the strength of the Lord, who David has stood for the integrity of God, who was courageous enough to go out and fight this battle through the Spirit of the Lord, who was willing to die for, for, for the sanctity of the nation of Israel and for God himself. We see this chapter right here following. Chapter 18, verse 1. And after David had finished talking with Saul, and this was probably a lengthy conversation, Saul brings him in. He wants to know everything about David because he's just taken on this Philistine. He's just become a public hero, so to speak. And he brings him in and he says, well, I want to talk to you for a while. And while he's talking, Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. What's occurring here? Well, what's occurring here is Jonathan, who is in line to become the next king. He is the oldest son. Everybody recognizes who he is and who he will be. And he hears David begin to speak. And he's had this paranoid father who's done everything he can to control and manipulate people. And has lived out of fear. And he sees and he hears and he meets this man 
who is still probably just a teenager and was willing to go and fight the most fierce competitor their nation has ever known, one named Goliath. And he has killed him in the name of God. And he has taken him on and he has routed the Philistine army. And now he hears him speaking and he hears of his character. He hears of his reason and he recognizes David's not done this for what he might gain. He's not done this so that he might be popular, but it's been a matter of conviction and principle. And he listens to the humility and he listens to the passion. And he thinks, this is the man that I desire to be. This is the man that I want to associate with. This is what I think real men look like. And his heart resonates. And the Bible says that he loves him as himself. And from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Now, what did we say earlier in John chapter 15? What does Jesus describe? A real friend, one who's willing to lay down his life. And we see David here and Jonathan. Jonathan saying he loves him as himself. He loves him with a love that is unheard of nowadays so often, whatever it costs me. Matter of fact, he makes a covenant with him. A covenant that says, I will basically put you before my needs. I will honor you. I will sacrifice for you. I will protect you. We will become as one. And what occurs in your life is of high importance to my life. He makes a covenant, not too much unlike the marriage covenants that are made in that day. And he makes a covenant with him to love him himself. And Jonathan takes off his robe. Catch this. He takes off his robe that he's wearing and he gave it to David along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Now, a common picture in that day, if you wanted to show full acceptance of someone, almost making them your equal, i.e. see Joseph and Pharaoh, you would take your robe or your outer garment and place it upon them. And that showed complete acceptance. That showed a compl- almost complete equality. So this is my brother. This is someone in whom I give uh, my blessing, whom I say I completely affirm and that I completely embrace. So there's, a, there's that picture going on. But it doesn't stop there. The Bible says that he also gave his sword and his bow. His sword. Now, what does that mean? Well, you've seen the old movies, and you, if you read history, you understand that particularly in ancient times, and even uh, we even see it happening in not-so-ancient times, where after a battle, if you had been defeated, and you were submitting to authority, you were recognizing, you are superior to me, you are now my authority, at the end of that battle, one general or one military leader might give the other, after they'd been defeated, their sword or their weapon. David, you see Jonathan saying, here's my sword and here's my bow. You know what he's doing here? This is what I think he's doing. He's saying, you know what? You should be the next king. You should be the one who's in authority. You are the kind of man that our nation needs. You are the man of God that I know has been foretold. I know my father will be having to step aside or will lose his kingship. And I'm the natural heir to the throne. But it should be you. Wow. Here's the picture, guys. Let's just think about our next presidential election. Uh, You know, there's the Democrat and there's a Republican. 
And, and one of the individuals is way ahead. And he's going to win the race. Everybody's virtually sure of He's got the majority of the votes. And it's pretty much a lockdown. But before the election, the other candidate, he recognizes is a stronger leader, has higher integrity, will be a better man for the nation. It's, it's the man that our nation really needs. And this person who's leading by, by every poll, and everybody understands he's going to be the next president, says, you know what, I'm going to pull out and I want to give it to you. Now, that's never going to happen in the United States. But nevertheless, that's the magnitude of that picture. That's what, in essence, Jonathan is doing right here. It's, it's really just unbelievable if you stop and think about it. So he's submitted his right to the throne. And we see in verse 5, whatever Saul sent him to do, David did, and he did it successfully. And so Saul gave him a high rank in the army. And, and by this time, there's probably some time passed, but he's still probably only 19, 20, 21 years of age. He's a young guy. And this pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. And when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing and with joyful songs, with tamarines and lutes. And they danced and they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now, that was also a very common practice that the uh, there would be a group of particularly women, sometimes there might be children with them, that would sing and dance when the military leaders came back from a great victory. So that's in essence what's happening after, uh, after one of these battles. And the women began to sing. And it always seems to bother us as men, particularly when it's the women singing, by the way, and the women cheering. And what do they hear? Oh, Saul. And this is supposed to be a compliment, okay? But Saul certainly doesn't take it this way. Saul has killed... Thousands. And David has killed ten thousands. It's like the picture in football. That back right there is rushed for over a thousand yards, and that back is rushed for two thousand yards. I mean, they got a great backfield. That's kind of the picture that's being given here. But what does Saul lock onto? What? Ten thousand? Just like a lot of us do. Saul was so very angry, and this refrain galled him, and he said, They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought. But with me, only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And if you'll remember in 1 Samuel chapter 16, God has already told Saul that, hey, your kingdom will be taken from you and given to a what? A better man. The better man's here. And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Now, the word jealousy, just... uh just real quick, the word jealousy is used, particularly in the Old Testament narrative, in different ways. In this particular instance, it's jealous just like you think. He, he's consumed with himself and worried somebody's going to take something from him. Somebody's going to hurt him or take something that he possesses. And so he's out of fear. He's being motivated. Now, when the Bible talks about God being jealous, the connotation of fear doesn't exist. So when the Bible says that God's a jealous, jealous God, it's not that he's afraid of us. He's afraid of other gods. He's afraid of that. what's going to happen. It's a picture of covenant commitment. It's a picture of complete loyalty. Okay? So I just say that because sometimes people misinterpret that word and uh, misuse and misrepresent that word. I remember 
unless I really digress here, I remember Oprah saying, you know, the last time she went to church, she heard the pastor say that God's jealous and I just can't handle that. So that's when I kind of abandoned Christianity. Okay, that's a complete misrepresentation and misunderstanding of jealousy when the Bible says God is a jealous God. He is saying, I am committed and you will be committed to me in a covenant relationship. There will be no other gods. There will be. The picture is almost of marriage. There will be no other men or no other women with inside our relationship. Okay? So one is a picture of commitment. This is a picture of fear. So there's a big difference. God is not afraid. God never fears, unlike we do often. So we continue on, and we see that Saul is jealous here, and he's dealing with the fact that David has become popular, and people are affirming that. They're singing songs about it. Now, let's flip over to chapter 19, verse 1. Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan was very fond of David and warned him. My father, Saul, is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. So we see six different times that Saul tries to kill David. Now, there's three times, if we read closely this earlier chapter, where he kind of does it covertly. In other words, he tries to put him in the heat of the battle. He sends him out to the worst battles and he makes him a field commander where he's actually going out with his troops. Okay, so there's the picture that that a lot of times they're probably going into battles where they're outnumbered. He's hoping that David will be killed. Not by by the way, unlike what Uriah the Hittite happens to him later on with David. And I kind of wonder if this influences David later on. But nevertheless, That's what occurs. Well, what happens? David just keeps winning battles. So now Saul, at this point, will start to not covertly, but overtly start to try to kill him. And he's so sick in his mind that he tells his son Jonathan and he tells his servants, look, we want to kill David. I know he's a national hero. I know he's a great guy. I know he's really helped us, but I'm jealous. Have you ever noticed what? The sin of jealousy and envy and greed can do to you. Have you ever seen someone who's just overtaken by it and they lose all sense of reason? We know Saul is dealing with some form of depression here. And he's so consumed with his greed and his jealousy that it's literally causing him to do what I call make him stupid. Sin makes you stupid. He's so consumed with sin that he's just being stupid now. There's not a better way to explain it. And he's telling Jonathan, whom he knows David has a close relationship with. He's telling him, we got to kill him. It's kind of like a little crazy man going on in here. What occurs? He saw uh, Jonathan, of course, tells David. He's made a covenant with David. He lets him know, I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are, and I'll speak to him about you and tell him what I tell you what I find out. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul. Remember, this is Jonathan who would be the king. And he speaks well. Of David, And he said to him, let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you and what he has done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. The Lord, notice the emphasis, the Lord won a victory for all of Israel and you saw it and were glad. Why then would you do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him? For no reason. And Saul listened to Jonathan and took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. Now, he doesn't keep that oath. Uh, but Jonathan is able to logically speak to him and get him to understand, look, there's no reason for this. 
So, so what do we see? We see three components here. We, first of all, we see the fans. We see the people who, who are almost hero worshipers. We see that today with people who are celebrity worship, athlete worshipers, or whatever, you know. And they find their whole time and their identity kind of found in this person because of what they supposedly have accomplished. And let me say, it's, it's not bad to have, to be a fan or to recognize somebody or maybe even occasionally even call them hero. But when we start to worship, when they start to begin uh, to take that place that God Almighty should have, when we start to take our time and our energy to devote uh, to the complete uh, just surrender and um, consuming of this individual and what who they are, then that's hero worship. And that's always a bad thing. That's usually because we're trying to feel another need in our life and we're looking for a savior and we're substituting this individual. Again, I, I think we ought to respect people. You know, there's a guy named Victor Perez this week. I, I had talked about last week about uh, another lady who was kind of a modern day hero. Victor Perez this week over in Fresno, California, uh, heard the report that this little girl had been taken from right outside her home. He, he heard the report of what the car looked like and he saw a car up in front of him and he began to follow that car and he noticed a little head. And uh, he, Victor Perez uh, is a is a he picks grapes over in the Fresno area. I mean, he was probably a minimum wage worker, has two kids of his own. He follows that car and finally blocks it off and uh, and gets the little girl out of the car. And sure enough, you know the story. Later on, they pick him up. That guy was a registered sex offender and uh, had already been uh, convicted a couple of different times. Here's a guy who doesn't really have anything to gain but decides that he will go and make an impact, decides that he will stand up for justice and righteousness. That's a picture of what Jonathan is doing here. And, hey, I want to identify those guys, and I want to say, way to go, Victor, all right? Way, way to go. But I'm not going to worship Victor. I'm going to think, I ought to be inspired and encouraged, but you are. Not, I'm not going to try to find my identity in Victor or in Tony Romo or whoever it is, all right? Number two. So they're fans. They're people that we know. They're people that we like. They're people that are nice. And they're people that we aspire to be like to a degree. And we're just simply fans in that sense. And that's the lowest level of relationship. It's not a relationship at all, if we're real honest. Okay? And number two, they're, they're foes. They're people who are against us. And sometimes we see people like this with David. Isn't it interesting? Some people want to worship heroes. Other people want to bring them down. Isn't that interesting? It's like uh, somebody does something great like that. And some people go, oh, I just, boy, I just really love them and so passionate about them. And other go, well, you know, I bet you if you looked into their life, you'd find some things you don't want to find out. You know what I mean? And it's almost like some people want to worship heroes and some people just want to drag people down. You know what I mean? It's like those two personality types. And you find that typically is true with people who are very successful themselves and someone else becomes more successful, i.e. see Saul. He was the king. Wait, there's someone else. Being recognized? No, that's not good. We've got to get rid of him. You know, it happens in the church world. It happens in the business world. Isn't it amazing sometimes how much ego plays into the factor of decisions that are made? It's really unbelievable if you stop and think about it. And which one are you? You might want to ask yourself that question. Where do I fit? Am I the one that wants to, to worship people, worship celebrities? Or am I the one that wants to tear them down? And then we see Jonathan, a guy who really has a lot to lose by making a relationship with David. But we see some components. We see, first of all, that he makes a covenant commitment and he renews it later on. A covenant commitment with David. 
which is the strongest bond that you can make with an individual. And what usually consisted, as a matter of fact, if we wanted to modernize this, first of all, in that covenant commitment, there was a moral trust. When we have a real true friend, one or two friends in our lives are like this. Hopefully our spouse, we can say this is true of our spouses. We have a moral trust for them. We trust them. We trust that they're going to do what they say they're going to do. Not that they're perfect. That we can uh, trust and respect whatever they tell us. There's that moral trust. And you have to have that for a real relationship. Next, there's kind of what we call maybe a bond trust. They're going to be loyal. You know what? Uh, No matter what happens, I know they'll have my back. I I know that they're going to be faithful. If I lose my job, if I have a hard time, whatever, if I have a heart attack, they're going to be loyal to me. And and that's huge to have that moral and, and to have that kind of loyal trust, that bond trust. The problem is a lot of times that's where our relationships kind of stop right there. The third one would be this. It's an emotional trust. An emotional trust, one that I can be transparent, one that I can be honest with you, even when I know that you're not going to like what I have to say, one in which I can be honest with you. Here's my whole deal with friendships today. We, we've made the highest value in friendship someone who listens. You know, they're a good listener. They listen. And they just make me feel good about myself. Can I tell you this? You know what a real friend The Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend. A real friend is one who is honest with you. And when they see you going down a destructive path, they'll step in. That's what a real friend is, not the friend who goes, well, you know, I don't want to say anything. I'm just going to listen. Well, you're not a friend. You're just a listener. And great, you're a listener, but you're, nobody's life has ever been transformed because you simply listen. OK, that can make us feel better. But what we need is people to get involved. We, I mean, if, are you a good parent if you only listen to your child? Yeah, mom, dad, I do drugs. I've been doing heroin for a while. Well, you know, that's not good. I don't know. I'm listening. To... No, we'd go, call the police and get a drug intervention person. I mean, we're going to do more than listen. We want to get involved. We want to intervene, man. We, we want to get you off this path. And if that means locking you in your room, I'm going to lock you in your room and sit on you, okay? I want to make an impact because I love you too much to just listen to this, okay? So, but it also means that I'm, I don't have to fly off the handle and completely lose it and abort the relationship. When you're transparent with me, when you're real with me. I mean, that's hard. And in today's society, that's rare in Facebook society to be transparent. Matter of fact, we worry about people. Sometimes, oh, just tell me too much. I don't want to hear all that. That's because you're not their friend. That's why you don't want to hear all that. Okay? That's just a good sign for you right there. They're not in your top three or four when you don't want to hear it. All right? So, moving on. A friend is also sacrificial. We see how sacrificial Jonathan was. Someone who's willing to say, you know, even if it costs me, I'll stay in this relationship. I am committed to you. And a friend perseveres. We see those characteristics in the life of Jonathan. And I think they're still very valid for us today. So, what do we glean from this? Well, I'll tell you this. That's the same way that God the Father loves us. You know what, when you, when you ask, what does it mean to be a friend of God? First of all, God is a friend to us. We can know that we can trust His character. We know that He is loyal to us till the day is, till the day is over, till our life is over. We know that He is honest with us. He tells us what we need to hear. He's described it in His Word. We know that He's sacrificed on our behalf. And we know that He will stay with us till the end. Now, the question is, we reverse that. Are we a friend of God's? Would we say he can trust our character? 
would we say that we are loyal to Him? We would say that we're honest and transparent with Him. That we're willing to sacrifice. Greater love hath no man than this, that He lay down His life for a friend, as Jesus has done for us. That's why I think the Bible, and you'll hear me quote this a lot at this church, I think that's why Jesus said six times, He who seeks to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will find life, finds purpose. And he who will stick with him. Are you sticking with him even through the difficult days of your life? Are you persevering saying, God, I don't see you, I don't feel you, I don't understand you. But as Job said, but I will trust you. Though you slay me, God, yet will I trust you. That's what it means to be a friend of God. This morning, I want you to answer that question. Would you say you qualify as a friend of God? Or would you say, I think I'm more of a fan. I mean, I, I say good things about God. I come to church. I don't have anything bad to say about Him. Sure is a nice God. Or you find yourself today, maybe, you know what? I'm struggling with God. I'm, I kind of see Him almost as against me today. I'm in that spot where I don't, I don't really connect with Him at all. I want to invite you to come where you are today. To say, God, I, I want to start again. I want to start anew. I want to transfer my trust. For me trying to manipulate things and saying, God, I, I trust you, but I'm still manipulating circumstances the best I know how. And just say, God, I, I will trust you. I give you control. I give you my life. What about you? Have you done that? I invite you today to become a friend of God by first trusting Him as your Savior. Recognizing you're a sinner and that you're not good enough. You can't do it. And He has done it for you on the cross. And receiving that by grace through faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning that while we were still sinners, you died for us. God, it's so easy for us to become so consumed with ourselves that we miss you sometimes. God, I, I pray that we wouldn't simply have a fan relationship with you. That we would recognize that when you came into this earth, you committed your all so that we might know you in a real and intimate way. And that you desire for us to know you in a real and intimate way. That we might be a friend of God. That we might first call you Lord and Savior. But become, but grow into such a relationship that we connect at an even deeper level. So Lord, I pray this morning, Lord, for those who uh, have only invited God into their lives for the purpose of salvation and have missed the real relationship. For those, Father, who the enemy has come and said, he's not there, he doesn't care. I pray that you would renew their strength and renew their faith today and then draw them to you. And Lord, if there's one here that doesn't know you as Savior, that they would say, I come to know. I want to know him. I need the person of Jesus Christ in my life. I recognize I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. I'm ready to give him control. I'm ready to accept his grace and forgiveness. Lord, I pray that this day you would draw those to you who need to come to you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.